scientist. For understanding how the world works, science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everybody. Welcome to the uh, November edition of Beers with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. This is our monthly podcast that highlights the science, thoughts, and philosophies of the members associated with our institute. And this month, we have the great pleasure of having Dr. Ravi Koparapu uh, from Penn State, and who's also affiliated with us. But first, I will let uh, Dr. Michael Bush, who was our speaker last month, to introduce Ravi, as well as this month's beverage. Always remember, though, obey your local laws when consuming alcoholic beverages. All to you, Michael. So I don't think there should be any local laws here because I'm introducing tea this month. Fantastic. <laughs> Although, if this is this is of course tea Earl Grey hot because Ravi will be talking about stuff that's either archaeology or astronomy. I could not decide which, so we will drink the drink of Jean-Luc Picard, the great alien archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. However, Earl, Earl Grey is a black tea tasty relic of the British Empire. Teas grown in British India, then flavored with Italian bergamot citrus, although you can get creative and stick in lavender or orange or use green tea and, or South African rooibos instead. All of them do taste better hot because the aroma from the citrus and other additives are more prominent. It's legal everywhere for everybody, so far as I know, but it's people may look at you strange if you're in China or Japan because green tea is far more popular. Drink up. So today we have Rave Koparapu, who will be talking to us about non-terrestrial artifacts in our solar system and some estimates also on the Drake equation parameters. Ravi's recently started as a postdoc with Jim Casting at Penn State, having switched to exoplanet atmospheres and planetary habitability from gravitational wave work and more physics-oriented astrophysics instead of astrobiology. Hopefully the change has worked well for you. Ravi, please. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jacob and Sanjay. Uh, thanks for inviting me to give this talk. This is the work I am actually did, uh, Jacob and I did last year. And this was Jacob's idea, and it's a very nice idea, actually. And we thought of writing this up, and we did, and um, we got a paper out of that. And uh, I'm going to discuss some of that uh, in today's talk now. But I'm not going to go through the math or anything. I'll just give you the gist of what we did in that work and what are our future plans and how we are going to proceed ahead. And by the way, I forgot to mention that the handout for today's talk is on bmsis.org slash podcast. Sorry, Ravi. That's okay. That's okay. Thank you. All right. So I use, I gave this talk uh, as a public talk to a couple of, couple of AstroFest events. And um, I'd like to start in the same way, but uh, slowly we'll go into a little bit more deeper um, uh, information regarding what we did. So, as you all know, we have sent a lot of exploratory probes to uh, inner solar system and two outer solar systems. For example, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 right now are at the edges of, edges of our solar system and probably going to venture into interstellar space soon. Just to give you a thought of how far they are, if you assume the Earth-Sun distance as one foot, then uh, Voyager is about 120 feet away. Voyager 1 is about 120 feet away. So they eventually will travel to probably some nearby stars. And uh, according to some estimates, if you travel with Voyager speed to go to Alpha Centauri, then one Alpha Centauri system, you'll take roughly 100,000 years. 
and even with the speed that which uh, with the space shuttle it will still take 75000 years so it to send probes to these nearby stellar systems it takes a lot of time but we are still trying to do that and hopefully soon we'll try to do it uh, in a much faster fashion um, uh, ravi if i may interject just to clarify for the audience the Voyager and Pioneer and also the New Horizons spacecraft are the five that are currently outbound from the solar system. That's New right. Horizons, of course, will fly by Pluto and keep on going. None of them are directed towards any star in particular. People have run their trajectories out for about a million years, and they will never get closer than about three-tenths of a light year to anything that we know about. That's correct. In fact, uh, none of them are directed to any particular star. So, the reason why uh, I'm ta- I was talking about this is because uh, we have discovered at least more than 800 extrasolar planets uh, until now. Most of them are massive and hot planets. These are called hot Jupiters. And hopefully, eventually, we'll discover potentially habitable planets, or let me say, planets in the habitable zone. At some point, we want to look at them and try to see uh, if... Uh, they are habitable just by looking at them, taking their atmospheric spectra, and see if there are any biosignatures in them. And once we know a good candidate list of uh, possibly habitable planets, we want to send, eventually, this is a long-term goal, we want to send probes to explore those planets to see what kind of life is out there. Uh, what we want to do at that time is to observe those planets when we send those probes and try to communicate back and see if there is any intelligent life over there and try to estimate what kind of life is out there. Now, just imagine the same thing happening to us. Imagine that the alien planet is our Earth and the exploratory probes are from an extraterrestrial civilization. They can do the same thing that we are planning to do, right? So, the question that Jacob and I asked in our paper is that how confident are we that those kind of uh, probes exist in our solar system? Have we looked enough? Space is really vast, so where do we look? Do we look on the moon or Mars or somewhere in the asteroid belt? What kind of probes can we find? So to distinguish between a couple of things, one, we focus only on the unpiloted probes rather than the piloted ones. The piloted ones are the ones we think as UFOs, which we don't want to get into. And the unpiloted probes are the ones that we... Uh, our human race uh, launched some, something like Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, like Michael mentioned, Pioneer and so on. So these are the kind of probes that we want to focus on, and they don't attempt to conceal themselves at all. And they probably are observing us from some distance, from on probably on Moon or Mars or anywhere, or probably on Earth. So how confident are we that such kind of probes exist? We try to mathematically derive this kind of probability that no, uh, no such probes exist. So we call them as non-terrestrial artifacts, these kind of probes, NTA. So I'm going to use the word NTA, non-terrestrial artifacts. So we wanted to estimate what is the probability that such NTAs do not exist within a volume of V. And uh, we assume the size of a probe is around 10 meters because anything a little bit bigger than that probably needs a lot of energy to drive from one system to another system. And also you probably would be able to see its effects on the gravitational effects on the nearby areas. So we try to estimate this probability based on how much search volume have we looked until now. And based on that, as we increase our knowledge about this search volume, so as we keep searching more and more volume of space, 
we can get better estimate on the probability that these NTAs do exist or do not exist. I'll just come right away to our conclusion, but I'll keep talking about how we, what can we do about it. So our conclusion at the moment from uh, what we estimated is that it's premature to conclude that solar system is absent of any non-terrestrial artifacts solely because we haven't looked enough. So that's where we are going to start with. So when I say that we are going to look for a probability that no NTS exists within a volume V, what search volume are we going to look at? The most obvious thing is to look in the whole solar system. But I, but what we think is let's start small. You don't want to look right away from the whole solar system. Let's start small. I'd say let's start with available data we have. So for example, the surface of the Earth has been explored mostly with one meter resolution. When I say the surface of the Earth, this does not include caves or jungles or forests or even surface of the oceans or even subsurface oceans. In fact, we haven't explored much at all. We can probably estimate some kind of a probability of whether NTAs exist in, within search volume. And we did this calculation and we estimated that we reached a point uh, assuming there are equal probabilities whether or whether or there is no NTAs. We estimated that uh, there are no NTAs within the volume V. The probability is around 75%. Now, Beg pardon. That, you, 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 want, you want to phrase that a bit more carefully. If there were an NTA of 10 meter size on the Earth, size. then the 75% chance you would have found it. I think it's the probability that NTAs do not exist in the volume. No, that, that, that's not the same thing. It's the probability if there was one, you would have found it. Oh, you could say were, probably yes, there, you probably say there, there was not one. There most likely is not one because if there was one, yes, you would have yes, found yes. It. that's right. You're right. You're right. So if there was one, we would have found it after ten meter size. Right. All right. So if we if we do that, then the next obvious step is to do actually a search for uh, on the moon. The surface of the moon has partially been explored by humans, rovers, and even by uh, surface mapping. The most recent one is the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter data. And that can be used to improve the probability of these uh, estimation of these uh, NTAs. And this is what we want to do with our future work, to uh, look on the surface of the moon using LRO data and try to estimate what kind of, what kind of limits we can place on the probability. LRO, for example, images at 50 centimeter resolution. The radiometric data is about, uh, I may be wrong, it's 500 meter resolution on temperature and albedo. So we can download this data and we can also run a search alg algorithm on try to see what kind of temperature variations from the surroundings or if there is any anomalous temperature variations or anomalous spectral reading from the surrounding areas and then try to estimate what the probability on whether we see NTS or not of 10 meters in size. That's what we are planning to do right now. But one thing we need to remember is that the probes may or may not be functional right now. And we, we are not necessarily looking, looking for functional probes. Uh, even if they are not functional, that still is interesting because that still is evidence. And this is what we, wanted, we want to do in our future work. For example, if you see the handout, the picture on the right is an image from LRO of the Apollo 11 landing site. And you can see the landing module and camera. The scale here is around uh, 500 meters in size. You can see these kind of objects over there, and this is just an image comparison, but we can actually do a temperature comparison or a spectral comparison on, on the surface of the moon, and then we can know more about what kind of uh, object we can get. This is what we, we want to do in, in our future work. Hopefully, we'll, we'll get to do that. I'm really interested in that. And uh, LRO site, for example, the, the data is free. We can access it. 
we have very high resolution of the data available so hopefully you'll probably listen some time in the future from us regarding what kind of estimates we can place on based on this data uh, there's um, a comment so something you may wish to think about for the LRO stuff there's <laughs> also the mini RF radar instrument on LRO which well it has not mapped globally has mapped large fractions of the lunar surface at 30, at 30 meter spatial resolution, but more importantly, it penetrates several meters into the soil. So you can sound down several meters below the current surface. And you can estimate if you land something on the surface of the moon, how long it takes to get buried to a certain depth. And okay. it works out that the several hundred million years, typically. This is not a global map, right? No, it's focused on the north and south polar regions because that's where you see significant concentrations of ice. Ice, right. But certainly if there was a metallic object or anything that was more, much more dense than the surrounding regolith, it would show up really obviously in the radar sounding. That's correct. So this is also a part of LRO data, right? Yes. Okay. I'll need to check that out. There is one data mining center, it's called the Diviner data is the one that I think um, is the one we are using now. We are planning to use actually. And I think that's the one we are trying to access it right now. But I'm sure I'll try to get that one. The data is huge, so it's it's not easy to search. But uh, it's let me put it this way: it's it's not difficult to devise an algorithm to search for this uh, kind of objects. It's really data intensive, just because there's a lot of data available. Okay, so I think I should probably stop at this point and ask for any other questions. Jacob, do you want to add anything that I missed? Uh, I think you covered it pretty well. I, I mean, I, I guess I guess I would just add that you know, of course. We like to uh, hope that there are NTAs or, you know, as astrobiologists anyway, but of course it's highly speculative. We don't really expect that we're going to find artifacts on the moon. But, um, you know, I guess whether we do a search like, like Ravi just described as a directed search for NTAs or more uh, normal astronomy search looking at asteroids and other such objects, we're more just putting out the idea that th this is a possibility not necessarily invest heavily in searching for these, but just keep our minds open to the possibility that we might stumble upon alien garbage like that. Does that depend right. on the wavelength that you're using to search? Presumably very long wavelength will have a hard time finding small objects. If I may comment there, that, that mostly applies to radar sounding for right. looking for objects that are deeply buried. And you're correct, if you've got a 10 meter object, you're not going to see it if you have wavelengths longer than a couple tens of meters. But that still as you penetrate kilometers down into most material. For example, the MRO, this is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, as compared to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, has a radar sounder which is being used to map the upper layers of the Martian ice cap at very fine resolution. And there's nothing buried there either, so far as anyone can tell. Now, as a comment, you say you're focusing on a 10-meter size you explain that anything larger would be more obvious. However, there's a lower size limit here as well. Objects smaller than a few meters, if you run them through the interstellar medium at any particularly high speed, get eroded fairly quickly because they're running into lots and lots of high-energy protons. Certainly any electronics in them get scrambled by radiation why would, bombardment. Why wouldn't that happen to a 10-meter or even you get, to, you, get, you get to an object larger than a few meters, you can pile enough shielding around any sensitive bits that they don't get completely disabled. You can't do that for a smaller one? The penetration distance of high-energy cosmic rays is a few meters into the ground. So notional models for interstellar spacecraft tend to have minimum sizes of 10 meters or so because anything smaller 
the radiation barbon fries any electronics that we know how to make. There's another comment. We can rule out smaller objects in orbit around the Earth or Moon out to as far as orbits around the Earth or Moon are stable. So, Atari, can you repeat that? Your voice got cut off. So, we constantly image space near the Earth. Looking for near-Earth asteroids, certainly the various military groups are, that are spying on each other's spy satellites and tracking orbit debris do this. And typical orbit debris tracking tracks stuff down to 10 centimeters or less. So there aren't any obviously artificial non-terrestrial objects. There are, of course, some asteroids flying around well, wait, within wait, wait. about a million kilometers of the Earth. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, do we have so, access to that data? That data is made available through the various asteroid survey programs. Most, most of it's publicly available, actually. Okay. There's a narrow cone towards the sun where only radar fences pick this up, and those are classified, unfortunately. But you can't keep an object on the, directly on the Earth's sun line for any particular length of time unless it's being actively steered, and that would be so, more obvious. Do we have isotropic data of around Earth? Isotropic, isotropic to perhaps a, hundred, a few hundred thousand kilometers, sort of one lunar distance. Beyond that, you have a cone towards the sun where most satellites can't look. And those that do look are dialing down the gain so that the sun does not fry the detectors. Radar sounding does pick up that region. That data is a bit less accessible. But basically, you can hide Russell's teapot in, in, in between the Earth and Mars. You can't hide it in orbit around the Earth. So burying stuff on planets is a good way to, or asteroids is a good way to hide things. Having them well, float out in space is not, unless they're very far away. Uh, so this is a question I have when people say that uh, you can look at the asteroids and you may they may exist there. Why why do we why do they want to be at the asteroid belt when they are so far away from Earth and they can't absorb that closely? You can do quite a bit of stuff with a ten meter spacecraft at the asteroid belt. However, so certainly if you're listening to radio. However, there's a problem, which is again you have to have to have a fairly active system to avoid getting hit by other asteroids. There's this collisional lifetime calculation you can do. Mm -hmm. which says that objects in the asteroid belt that are a kilometer wide will get destroyed by collisions in 100 million years or less, depending on where they are. Smaller objects get destroyed more often. So if you have a 10-meter wide object, it's not going to last very long in terms of the timescales of somebody who would want to fly across interstellar space unless it's constantly adjusting its orbit to avoid collisions. Well. Okay. Well, I'll add to that, Michael, too. If you have an active probe that can do more than just adjust its orbit, uh, there are a lot of resources in the asteroid belt, as, as you know. Um, so, you know, some people have put forth the idea of probes that can actually, um, you know, mine resources from its environment to either repair or replicate itself. And um, whether it or not that probe exists now or did at one point, there's you know potential signs of asteroid mining people have suggested for for uh, evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. Again, speculative, but you know at least possible. Proposal is self-replicating thing, and that actually lets you make smaller probes because you send a big probe and then it makes smaller probes when it gets to its destination. But I'm not sure that counts as a probe because any AI that could do that would be really really smart. So. That's and maybe you're getting contacted by robotic aliens as opposed to by probes. I don't. Well, but, but perhaps a scenario somewhere in the middle is a probe with some crude mining capabilities that go on for, say, several thousand years, and then the probe dies out. And so, in the end, we find alien artifacts that are, are non-functional, but it might be artifacts coupled with evidence of crude mining. You can always make them small enough to hide, but we certainly haven't seen any yet. I'm just putting forth a reason why they might target the asteroid belt. There are resources there. 
and it might and, be easier to get into an asteroid orbit than into uh, than to land on Earth or even the Moon. Right, right. So, Mike, Michael or Jacob. Uh, so, this is the problem I have with the asteroid having uh, things being in the asteroid. I like the fact that they, you know, they can use the raw material from the asteroids, but I don't think they they'd want to stay there and then observe Earth. They'd rather be close to Earth, like probably on Earth itself or probably near the Moon. Or they could hang out on a near-Earth asteroid that makes a flyby of the Earth every 10 years at a distance of a million kilometers. And we know they were there. There was actually a bizarre case a few years ago. The WIND spacecraft, which is uh, designed to monitor the solar wind, it flies in a very eccentric orbit around the Earth that takes it outside of the magnetopause. It did a trajectory change out at at apoapse, such that it was briefly on a free solar orbit. Somebody on the ground observed it at that time, and I didn't identify it as the spacecraft and thought it was a newly discovered asteroid. We were making plans to observe it with radar, and then somebody noticed that the orbit had changed because the spacecraft, of course, was readjusting its orbit back so that it was bound to the Earth and would come back to the, be able to download its data to the ground more easily. So we, do, we would find these things if they were out there and changing around their orbits in any significant way. If they're just inert and following purely ballistic trajectories, you can hide them. Well, even those trajectories, when they come close to Earth, they won't be observing much longer, right? They'll have to do an orbit around it. Well, you'd get sort of a few days' worth of data every 10 years. But then is it worth spending that much energy to just to get a few days' worth of data only in the last, you know, couple of years? Well, you don't spend any energy once you're sitting on the rock. It depends on how, you know, sufficiently devious and or hiding your aliens are. As we get better and better data on the solar system... Eventually, you'll have to come to the point where the aliens are, you know, being perverse and deliberately making themselves hard to find. Well, that's the that's the one we talked about in our paper at the Strong Zoo Hypothesis. Where you just progressively push the aliens away into harder to find places. Well, now I'll add to this discussion before we get into, you know, alien, when aliens get camouflaged, you can you know, make them do anything you want because we can't find them. But before we get to that point, uh, we shouldn't get too anthropocentric about what extraterrestrial motivations might be. And, you know, certainly we as humans are interested in finding Earth-like planets around other stars. And certainly if we were going to design a probe to look at another planet, ideally we would try to get as close to that Earth-like planet as possible. But there's two things. If the aliens are doing this, maybe they are interested in Earth, but it's really hard to get close to Earth. And they settle for an orbit around Jupiter or an asteroid orbit just because it's energetically easier and it's still better data of Earth than they could have gotten otherwise. Or maybe they're really not interested in Earth at all. Maybe they live on a world like Titan and they saw a Jupiter-like world around a G star. And maybe, you know, we're an interesting solar system, but for different reasons than we think we're interesting. And so, you know, perhaps there's a lot of reasons that there might be probes resident elsewhere that are astronomically interesting. Maybe they have no interest in water-like planets, but they just really like solar systems that have icy planetesimal comet clouds or gas giants or, you know, there's a lot of reasons that alien astronomers might have to explore. And so perhaps it's because Earth is interesting, but perhaps it's just because the solar system is interesting more broadly. Uh, just to point out, Jacob, it doesn't make any sense to argue that they're out, out of Jupiter because it's easier to get to Jupiter than it is to get to the Earth. If you can cross interstellar space at any sort of reasonable speed, the extra gravitational flyby of Jupiter to drop you into the inner solar system is not going to pose that much of a problem. 
No, but Jupiter might be more interesting is my point. So, okay, maybe maybe there's no energetic limits. I could be wrong on that. But J- Jupiter may be a more interesting planet for alien astronomers than we think. I, I'm just I'm just saying, you know, when you talk about alien motivations, there's the danger in getting too uh, Earth-centric. And there could be a lot of reasons. Is a fair point. Now, you're also going to talk about some stuff on the Drake Equation? Oh, yes. What I wanted to ask you guys is, I think we probably know a couple of terms well now from for the Drake equation. So we, I can't show you right now, but I, you, if you know, uh, if you can remember the Drake equation, the first one is the rate of star formation, which we know, uh, we think we know. And uh, right now, the second term is the one that I think we are pretty confident about, uh, which is the fraction of stars with planets. So there was this recent study by Kassan et al. Uh, in Nature uh, this year. It's a microlensing uh, survey, and they did a planet mass distribution, and they found that on an average, every star in the Milky Way has at least 1.6 planets within a distance of 0.5 to 10 AU. So this probably... And that's also consistent with results from the Kepler transit. Kepler did, exactly. So uh, I just wanted to point out that, you know, all these surveys are pointing out, you know, almost every, every star in our galaxy has a planet. One of the terms in the Drake equation is this fraction of stars with planets. That's probably close to one now. So we have a rate of star formation, which is probably around 10 stars per year. And the fraction of stars with planets is one. So the, in fact, the Drake equation gives you the, num- uh, the number of communicating civilizations in our galaxy. So you have 10 from rate of star formation and fraction of stars with planets is 1. So the number is 10 there already. Now the question comes with what happens to the remaining terms, which are these, uh, you know, the fraction of uh, those planets on which um, suitable planets where life can appear and fraction of life-bearing planets intelligence can develop and communicating fraction of planets which can develop communicating broadcast technology. So all these three factors the fraction of planets that can have life, fraction of planets where they can develop intelligence, and fraction of planets that have broadcasting technology. These three factors are the ones that we don't know now. And I assume that, okay, let's assume all of them are about 0.1, 10%. Maybe some people will say pessimistic, some people will say it's optimistic, I don't know. I have seen talk where they have given, you know, there are numbers that, that can vary between these three numbers. But I think given, you know, what we know or what we don't know, I'm just going to take 0.1.1.1 for them. That's about 10 to the minus 3. And uh, there is one other factor in the Drake equation, which is the number of habitable planets per solar system. We have two planets in the habitable zone. Uh, uh, beg pardon, Ravi, uh, you have to be careful. What are you defining as a habitable planet? Planets in the habitable zone. You're saying Earth and Mars, I assume. That's But correct. Carl Sagan would have said that you should include Jupiter and Saturn and Titan. And, he, and Europa, he would come up with six because he figures you can do interesting organic chemistry in the clouds of Jupiter and you can make hot air balloons of life. Granted, okay. nobody's ever seen such a thing. But yes. It's a question of what you mean by habitable zone. Okay, so let's play the traditional habitable zone, which the way I define in our paper uh, is the planets, uh, terrestrial planets, which have uh, surface liquid water on them. How would that? So that should probably narrow it down. To, let's say... The number of habitable planets per solar system is one. Okay. Okay. So if you multiply the rate of star formation, 10, times the fraction of star planets, which is about one now, times the number of planets in the habitable planets per solar system, that's one. 
and if you multiply these three factors i was just talking about uh, life appearing intelligence life and broadcasting 0.1.1.1 that's about 10 to the minus 3 so you have a factor of uh, 10 to the minus 2 and if you assume the lifetime of a technological civilization about let's say 1000 years i don't know maybe 1000 is a good one then you have about the number comes out to be the number of communicating civilizations comes out to be 10 okay and i'd say that okay let's be even more optimistic let's just say that the lifetime of the civilization is 10000 years of any you know advanced civilization then the number of communicating civilizations in the galaxy is 100 so i i just did a quick calculation and then i found that if you take the number of civilizations in the galaxy to be 100 the communicating civilizations then the nearest civilization should be probably around uh, within 5000 light years away and if uh, you assume that if the number of civilizations are 1000 they are about uh, 10000 sorry then the nearest civilization is about 500 light years away so a lot of that depends this number the number of civilizations in the galaxy depends a lot on the lifetime of a advanced civilization and you can change the three factors i was talking about you can increase that factor by a five all three of them and that will only increase the number by a factor of 100 and still the Uh, the optimistic estimate for the nearest civilization is about 400 light years. So, so as a I, comment here, if you have a 10,000 year lifetime for civilizations, and the nearest civilization is 5,000 light years away, all the civilizations that we might ever detect will already be dead. Well, that's what it looks like. I mean, that's what I'm I'm concerned. What? Hence my concern about archaeology. Well, I'll add to that, maybe it's good that we're doing missions like Kepler. You know, sometimes people get disappointed that Kepler is looking at stars that are so far away and that are not good targets for nearby human space exploration. But maybe Kepler-type missions are most likely to find signs of intelligence because they're so far away, and the nearby stars are probably not inhabited. Well, as another comment, we can limit very strictly the number of very, very large active civilizations. The wise infrared all-sky survey. has determined that there are no dyson swarms within 6000 or so light years of the earth dyson swarm being you have a civilization that's so hungry for energy they surround the entire star in a big shell of satellites there aren't any of those nearby okay it may be a very lonely universe this is what the data indicates you know the first three times we can't change in fact it may even get worse if we if kepler says that you know not many uh, not every star system has a habitable planet This was a new so, spin on the rare earth hypothesis, right? And if we're I I don't want to go there, <laughs> but you know, I well, know the other option yeah, is is cause a caveat here, which is you can say that with this sort of analysis, you can say that plants with life on them may be fairly common because life existed on the earth for several billion years, so you make a lifetime 10 to the 9 instead of 10 to the 3, then the nearest plants with life on them are only a few tens of light years away but the nearest well, planets with currently alive intelligent life are much much further away oh so that's we, we may just find lots of planets covered with microbes right right but drake equation is for number of communicating civilizations in our galaxy right so we are focusing where, where, where intelligence is defined as being able to build a radio yes right it's a very pragmatic definition well there what else can we do i mean what other <laughs> what other way we have uh, uh, to detect a advanced civilization over very large distances measured in thousands of light years not much yeah exactly so that's the reason we have to build with what we have we know now right so i guess the one thing i would maybe add to what you're saying about this ravi is so let's say you know if we think that the the 3 f terms the the life intelligence and communication are are very common if we think 
life is prevalent in uninhabitable planets and many of them develop intelligence and many of them develop communicating technology, then that means, you know, in respect to those things, we may not be so rare. You know, maybe Earth and life and intelligence and communication are common, but maybe the fact that we don't observe wide-scale technological civilizations is because it's, diff you know, because of this L term, because once you exactly. get the communication... Uh, you just don't last that long, and um, I've heard the term "the great filter," you know, used for this. And you know, maybe if it's not hard for the origin of life, and it's not hard to get intelligence, and it's not hard to get communication, maybe it's really hard to live with technology. And not many civilizations last that stage. You you nailed the point. That's exactly where I'm actually heading to. I'm I was I was wondering that is this is this the reason or is this probably one of the solutions for Fermic Paradox? Because unless L is larger, the lifetime of a civilization, N won't be large, which is the number of communicating civilizations in the galaxy. And if N is not large, the nearest one is not going to be, there won't be any nearby communication, uh, nearby civilizations. Maybe that's the reason we don't see them. Maybe we have to wait a few hundred years to actually see some sort of a signal or something. This leads because to the, fact to the uh, possibility that in a few hundred years, we may not be able to communicate anymore, right? <laughs> That's also true. No, but I'm assuming well, the lifetime is a thousand years. So there's a point here, or perhaps the lifetime is very long, and you know maybe there's dolphin philosophers swimming around underneath the ice shell of Europa, but well, they're not going to be communicating to the outside anytime soon. Right? You, you, did you read David Prince's uh, science science fiction novels, Uplift? Well, that was humans making alien. That was humans making dolphins intelligent. Right. I was referring to somebody swimming around underneath the ice of Europa as a dolphin, which may not be accurate. Right. So my, my question to you guys is that, is this, a, is this right? Is this what, what I thought? Because I, I collected all the data from exoplanet uh, discoveries and, you know, some, some kind of estimates and even went to crazy estimates for the three factors I was talking about. Even if you increase them a factor of five or six, you still see that it entirely depends upon, mostly depends upon the lifetime of the civilization. And that critically determines how what is the closest civilization to us, and maybe that's the reason we are probably are not able to find or see any any advanced civilization now. I think that's a very interesting result because if L is a factor that's of interest, that adds a lot of uh, philosophical conversations on how we need to treat ourselves for the long-term survival of our own species, since probability says that communicating species don't last long. So perhaps that, well, that adds not an quite. to You can vary the, you, you can set a very strong upper bound on the other numbers, because they can only go from zero to one. That's but exactly it's possible for L to be very, very high, and for there still to be nobody else in the galaxy, or any other galaxy. This is the rare Earth hypothesis, right? That yeah. life comes into existence on very few planets, because evolution requires that you have life to start with. This, this is leading to a grim result here. So I just don't know, or I just don't want to, or maybe I want you guys to prove me wrong or something. So, but, or I'm crazy. So just, I just want to put it out there and I want you guys to think about it and see if you can, you know, if you can arrive at the same conclusion. It's L that's most critical, it looks like. Well, Ravi, maybe one uh, optimistic way to look at it is that L is really an average. So even if L is low, in, in terms of civilizations in the galaxy, it only really takes one civilization to solve their development problems and to move past that average and actually have a long lifetime. 
So even if the distribution of owls shows that most civilizations tend to die out, perhaps a very small number, even just one, survives long enough to colonize other stars, and then they might actually have a very long lifetime. You raise an important point here, Jacob. The, is there a way to actually do a simulation to estimate L? Let's say you take like 1,000 simulations, 1,000 civilizations, and see what would be the distribution. Claudio McCone has done some work on the statistical Drake equation, and he's published a number of papers and I think a recent book. Um, and so that's at least one approach to you, how you consider the fact that these numbers are averages and are, are you know, random variables that have a distribution across planets. So that's one way to look at it. You really can't see what the value of L is, but you can at least do some interesting mathematical and philosophical tricks to, to play with what happens with distributions. But it does only take one. Once one civilization crosses that filter, they could very easily go over to you know colonize the whole galaxy. And maybe we're the first to reach that threshold. And so to me, that makes uh, human survival and the future of Earth all the more important. If we haven't found anyone, then it's more important that we become the ones to last. I think that's a wonderful place to end the conversation. Importance of humans in the future of life in the universe. Take that home. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Ravi, thank you again a lot for your talk. It was great to hear this conversation. I hope you can join us next month for another edition of Beers with the Global Space Institute of Science. Until then, see ya. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks, Ravi. Thanks, Ravi. That was great. See everyone. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.